Michael Quinn has won the national championship for the Quinnipiac Bobcats. When you win a national championship, student athletes are going to leave for the NHL. You have to use the transfer portal to get more players. Here's Joe Dumay on the days after winning it all. So after we won, well, I guess I, we can go back. So the transfer portal opened while our season was going on. So it was great that we made it to the Frozen Four, but for three weeks, we were one of only, you know, four eight teams left playing where everybody else was recruiting the kids on the transfer pool. And we didn't really, we could talk to those kids, but we didn't have a spot to offer it because we didn't know who's coming back and who's not coming back. All right, welcome to the 10th Second Podcast. Uh, the assistant coach of the national champion Bobcats, Joe Dumay. Joe, welcome. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming in. You are a class of 2006 graduate, a player under uh, Coach Pecknold and the Bobcats uh, from Maine originally. How did your, where's your origin story start in Maine? Yeah, so I um, originally grew up in Maine. My whole family's there. They're still there. Um, I want to say everybody lives within a mile of each other. <laughs> so you have my parents, you got my sister, my aunts, my uncles, everybody's there. Yeah. Um, I'm kind of the only one that branched out and left Maine and never came back. <laughs> Broke away. Yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, I grew up there. I you know took the untraditional route uh, as far as hockey goes. I stayed at my high school for all four years. Um, I played four sports. I actually played soccer, wow. played hockey, and then I played baseball. In my senior year, I also played lacrosse. Um, and after high school, it was kind of like, okay, where, what am I doing now? And, um, you know, I was approached by a junior hockey team, and I, I, I tried that for a year. And um, while I was playing junior hockey, Quinnipiac uh, started to recruit me by a guy named Kyle Wallach, who I'm still uh, good friends with today. And um, I chose to come here. And it was kind of an unknown. I liked the campus the small knit community didn't really realize it would get to this point but at the time I just wanted to play college hockey and this was a great place to do it and at that time Quinnipiac was not division one they were division two right at that point so at that time we were division one so I think oh, we that's went right. that's division right. yep. one in 99 so that's I was true. being recruited in 2001 okay but again this was you know a new league it was brand new division one hockey you know, we we're playing out of Northford Ice Pavilion, which is a youth hockey rink. So was it Division One? Yes. But was it really Division One? People could argue that. <laughs> that point. <laughs> and so what was the recruiting process like for you? I mean, was Quinnipiac the only school that really was looking at, you were looking at? or I was, was looking, looking at, at Merrimack, Yukon. I was very interested in Yukon. I liked to visit to there. I liked to visit to Quinnipiac. And um, at the end of the day, like I could have gone Division three too, and and played a lot more, and um, I wanted to play Division one. I. I knew it wasn't a high level at Quinnipiac as far as uh, the league goes, but we also had the opportunity to play Michigan and to to go to the University of Maine, which which is where I'm from, and play teams like that. So I really wanted to take advantage of that and be able to play against those teams. Very nice. And 2005, I think you're the seventh player award recipient for this club? Yeah, I believe 2005, I was seventh player in 2006, coaches award. Very nice. Very nice. And so after your playing career, 
you've got this degree. Yep. And what are your decisions? What are your options? What are your decisions? What are you What are you thinking about before? Because it sounds like hockey was something you really enjoyed, but whether it could be a career or not, you might not have been too sure about. Yeah, I mean, as a player, I was a solid player. I was more of a role guy. Um, at five foot seven, you're not going to make uh, a role guy is not going to make a career in hockey. So. Going back for me, when I was in middle school, I knew I wanted to coach. When I got to high school, anytime there were captain's practices, whether it was hockey or baseball, lacrosse, soccer, I always was the ones running it, and I loved it. And so when I came to Quinnipiac, um, funny story, so Reed Cashman and myself, we lived together my sophomore year. Reed Cashman, the now coach of Dartmouth. Correct. Mm -hmm. And... um, you know, we both knew we wanted to coach, and obviously we're in coaching right now still. Um, and so we were talking about a major at Quinnipiac, and everybody was in business on the team, and they all wanted to be on Wall Street, which they all are. And Reed and I are like, we just got to find something that's that's easy. <laughs> we don't need anything hard. We're going to be coaches. We don't need engineering. We don't need business. So we asked around, we looked around, and uh, we came up with sociology. <laughs> <laughs> And so we were like, you know, sociology could be good for a hockey coach and psychology was the other one. Um, And at the end of the day, we're like, sociology seems a little bit easier. You have to write some papers, but it's not too strenuous. So Reed and I picked sociology because we thought it was the easiest major at Quinnipiac. I don't know if I should be saying that, but that's at the time in 2000, I think three, that's why we both chose sociology. We both went through all the classes together. Your parents and, must be so proud. Yeah, they are. <laughs> <laughs> and so, but I always knew I wanted to coach. Right. And Rand, being you know, he was a great coach, but he was also looking out for us for our futures. He called me and he's like, "Joe, what do you want to do?" And this is probably my junior year. I was like, "Rand, I want to coach. That's what I've always wanted to do." He's like, "Okay, so after you graduate, I'm going to send you set you up at Ohio University." So the the current assistant coach at the time was Ben Sire. So Ben Sire went to Ohio University, he got his master's, and he was the grad assistant for the hockey team. So I was like, done. So I graduated from Quinnipiac. Uh, Ben and Rand both helped me get into Ohio University, the master's program, which was a coaching education program. So I went there for a year. It was only a year, it was great. I got my master's in a year. I was a grad assistant uh, for the hockey team. And, you know, I got right into coaching. That's how my coaching career started. So a lot of it was because of Rand and Ben Sire. And, um, you know, obviously Reed and I both kind of followed the same path. He was a much better hockey player than I was. And so he played pro hockey for a little bit and then got right into coaching. Oh, that's funny. And so you first first assistant coaching job is at UConn, is that right? Yeah, so I started coaching at UConn and you know, a lot of people right now see UConn and Hockey East with 18 scholarships. They get a brand new rink. UConn was similar to Quinnipiac. There was no scholarship. So Quinnipiac, when I came here, had scholarships, but UConn didn't. So they had zero scholarships, and they did actually have a rink on campus. It was very small. Um, and so when I went there, our selling point was come to UConn. You know, it's a good school but you can get in-state tuition. So how we recruited is we recruited kids to come to UConn. 
we helped them get in-state tuition. So their tuition went from whatever it was, 55 a year to maybe 25,000. And that was our sell. That's your scholarship is getting in-state tuition. So I think every program, you got to find ways to, to, to get kids, to get a sell. And so I spent three years there and probably the best part of it was you were recruiting to Atlantic hockey, which was very difficult. You were recruiting with no scholarships, which was even more difficult, but you learned how to recruit. Like you had to recruit a lot of kids. You had to find unique ways to get kids to go to the school. Um, So I think it taught you a lot as if you just went to a high profile school, it's a lot easier recruiting. You know, kids want to go to those high profile schools. And so I think the groundwork for me as a recruiter started at UConn and just learning how how to get kids to go there. And, and it wasn't just the kids you had to recruit, it was the parents. They were the, one pay, they were the ones paying. You had to kind of guide them through the whole in-state process and whatnot. So um, yeah, I spent three years there and, and I was fortunate to go to, uh, to Union with uh, Rick Bennett. So getting to yes is like, that's what you're trying to get to, right? Like you're trying to convince them that this is a place for them and they will fit and they will play and you want them to say yes. Yes. And another funny story is, so a former coach at UConn always used this term when he was selling parents and recruits to go there. And I kind of picked up on it. I used it a little bit, but I kind of stopped because it was ridiculous. Is He used to tell everybody, you know, UConn were a public ivy. <laughs> We're a public Ivy. So he would sell parents that, you know, UConn's this great school. We're one of very few schools in the country that are public Ivies. And I mean, if you know, like, what is that? What does that, that mean? You right, know, right. What like, is that exactly? It just sounded good. Right, right, right. And, you know, I used that a few times. And then you get a few looks like, what is this guy talking about? And then you just kind of, I stopped using it. But right, your confidence level is like, yeah, maybe I shouldn't use that Yeah, line. especially... It's like, what, what is going on here? So anything you could find to, to gain an edge and get a player, and, get, and like you said, get a guy to say yes, get a family to say yes, you use. But that, that was a good one that um, a former assistant used, Public Ivy. That's funny. <laughs> and so the world changes when you go to U- Union, right? Obviously, I mean, it's a higher quality hockey program. You know, obviously, you kind of, it's different now than it was when you first uh, when you when you went to Union, but um, you've got scholarship opportunities. But there's... actually, Union has no scholarships either. Oh no! Scho- oh okay. Yep. So so I go to Union, which was a higher league. It was a better league. We, we were now in the ECAC. Um, so obviously, the same league as Quinnipiac. So I got there. Fantastic school. So you're selling academics. Um, you're selling the league. You're selling a good hockey program, but you also don't have scholarships. So you still have to convince the parents to pay, you know, it was in the 60s, I, I want to say it was expensive back in, uh, that was eight years ago now. Um, so you're still trying to sell the parents, like you got to pay for this, but it's going to benefit your kid because he's going to get a great education. He's going to play for a great hockey team. And then beyond that, you know, he's going to be able to step in the real world and get a job right away. Um, So, yeah, I go to Union. Um, The team was just kind of the year before they had a career year. So I was stepping into a very good situation um, in that first year where everybody was coming back from a really good team. And, you know, the first I was there five years and, 
you know, it was, it was a fantastic five-year run, and right. we won a national championship in 2014, which was incredibly a part of. So. And back-to-back, right? Yale from the ECAC won and followed by you got, uh, Union at that point. Yes, Yale won in 2013, and Union won in 2014. Yeah, so it was back-to-back for our league, which was at that time was fantastic. And what was that, what was that like as an assistant coach being part of that process and being part of that? year i mean because they're special right because i mean that's i mean that's kind of the reason for this whole podcast right is it's special it doesn't happen very often yeah so i learned a lot in that year in the sense where i didn't really know what was happening i was kind of newer to to coaching and you know i had only been in college hockey for about six years at that point and you know, we go through this run where we won 17 games in a row to win the national championship, and this was in Philly. We beat uh, Boston College in the semifinals. We beat Minnesota in the finals, and it, it was amazing. It was great. Don't get me wrong. But I didn't realize how big of a deal it was. And then, so that was on a Saturday. And Monday, our whole staff, we were back in the office. And we're like, you know, that whole week, we're back to working, recruiting, all that stuff. We never took any time to enjoy it. And I, so I never realized how special that moment was. And then at that point I was married and I only had one kid at the time and Colin was very young. So my wife was at the game. Colin, I think was back at the hotel. So I had no kids there. And so it was just kind of like we won, we moved on and that was it. And so now you know, I've been at Quinnipiac seven years and I came back here because it's my alma mater. I love it. And I wanted to be a part of the first national championship team. And for the first six years, you know, we're very close, but we just can't get there. And you start to realize how hard it is to not just win a national championship, but get to the frozen four, get to the elite eight. It is so difficult to do. And you know, I thought we had the team last year to do it. Uh, we lose to Michigan in the Elite Eight. And at that point, I was like, man, like, is this ever going to happen? And so now fast forward to this year. So as we're going through this Frozen Four run, my four kids are all at the game. My wife's there. My parents are there. My sister, her family's there. Her sister, everybody's there. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to enjoy this. <laughs> I'm going to enjoy every second. So I feel like this time around for me, I just soaked everything in. You know, after the game, I enjoyed it with my um, my wife and my kids and my whole family. That whole next week, I just stepped back and, you know, I called, you know, friends that were at the game and just thanked them and appreciated that. I just tried to enjoy every moment because it is such a big deal to win a national championship. And the, the thing I realized the most since 2014 at Union, how hard it is to win. It is extremely hard. Not There's only one team that can do it. And right. there's a lot of coaches who have been around for 30, 40 years that have never won it. Um, so that's probably the biggest thing. From and good coaches, right? I mean, good quality coaches. coaches that just for some reason, either an injury or some situation that occurs, a penalty in the last minute or something that affects your whole season. It is so hard. And, and so, yeah. So, I mean, for me, the, you know, we were talking about union. It was fun, but I just don't think I really enjoyed it and soaked it in as much as I should have and we'd like to have. And even our staff from that year, from 2014, 
we still talk about it. I wish we would have done more. I wish we would have enjoyed it more. Maybe taken a few days off and gone golfing or gone out and done something together. We, we just didn't. It was kind of like, oh, yeah, we won. Great. Now it's back to work. <laughs> so let's tr- transition to um, the Monday the Monday after for a second. We'll, and we'll get to the game in just a second. But as you know, we were, I just happened to be in the rink most of the day because we were planning for the, the celebration uh, later that day. You were on the phone for at least eight hours that day <laughs> because I presume, and you can tell me if I'm wrong, the NHL is calling, the transfer portal is opened up. I don't want to say you didn't have a day to celebrate because I'm sure you did and you took some time and there was there was some some good celebratory events afterwards. But talk about it as an assistant coach what that day was like. So yeah, that that next so after we won, well I guess I we can go back. So the transfer portal opened while our season was going on. So it was great that we made it to the Frozen Four, but for three weeks. We were one of only, you know, four, eight teams left playing where everybody else was recruiting the kids on the transfer portal. And we didn't really, we could talk to those kids, but we didn't have a spot to offer because we didn't know who's coming back and who's not coming back. So for us, goaltending was a really tough thing because, you know, Yanni Peretz could have come back. We thought he would probably sign, but we weren't sure, so we couldn't go offer another goalie at that time. So we were kind of behind the process. We were behind the eight ball. And so once that Monday hit, it was, is Yanni coming back? Colin Graff is getting pursued by every NHL team. Jacob Quillen's getting pursued. Sam Lipkin, the Arizona Coyotes who have his rights, were talking to him to potentially get him to come and sign. So it was just complete mayhem. It's, is Jaden Lee coming back for a fifth year? Is CJ McGee coming back? Is Skylar Brendamore coming back? So we had all these unknowns that we're trying to figure out with all these kids. And then on the back end, we're trying to recruit all these kids to make sure that they don't commit to other schools. So if Perrette signs, we have five goalies set. We can offer him. If he says no, we can go to the next guy. So you have a pool of 30 kids you're talking to trying to keep, you know, you're trying to tell them the situation, don't commit yet. So it, it was just absolute mayhem. And that's part of our jobs, though, is, you know, we that's have... That's a great problem to have, right? Yeah, you have yeah. to be on the phone and you have to have... For Peretz as a goalie, that's the most important position. You can't just be talking to one kid. You need to be talking to eight kids because if the first four don't say no, like you can't just, where do you start? You need to have that list of guys. And so that whole week, um, actually it was probably three weeks until we we knew Skyler was leaving, Peretz was leaving, then Graf. Yeah, there's 10 kids leaving, right? Uh, yeah, roughly 10, about 10 yeah, kids. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean, some are graduating. They're not leaving. Correct. Yeah, we had our fifth years who we knew we were leaving. And, and there's then, two in the portal, right? Two yeah. went to the portal. And so. Uh, so it was just, you know, mayhem. It, it really was. And then again, like I said, you're trying to enjoy everything. You're trying to enjoy the celebrations. But you're also 24-7 on the phone making sure that, you know, the replacements are ready for when these guys do – Sign. And Quinnipiac has to be a, now a destination, right? In terms of, sh- sure, maybe not, you know, you, you might not get the Minnesota kid, you might not get the uh, Michigan kid that really wants to go to Michigan who's a NHL, you know, first round, second round draft pick. But you guys have established that this can be done 
it it was done. You've been to the Frozen Four three times in the last ten years. It's got to be a little bit easier. It doesn't. Not, I'm not saying they're just rolling over to come to Quinnipiac, but it's it's got to be a little bit easier. Yeah, so we're, we are a destination. Um, I think there's a lot to sell here. You start with the university. I think that's a big thing, right? You could have a good hockey team, but you need a nice campus, right? We have that. You need good academics. We have that. You need a good location. We're between New York City and Boston, so we have we're close to everything you need a nice rink we have the nice rink we have a good hockey team so when you start piecing all of that together we do have that great sell for kids and families that when they are checking is it six boxes is it seven is it eight we do check all eight of those boxes for families so we have a great sell here um you know we feel the coaching staff is big too because a lot of coaches are in and out you know, they're there for four years. They're there for three years. You know, our sell is, hey, Rand's been here 29, going on 30 years. That's going to be your head coach. Because a lot of people, when they're going to schools, it's like, all right, is this coach really going to be here? And for us, it's easy. Yeah, he's going to be here. He's been here for 29 years. So that sell for me is is easy when I'm talking to recruits. Um, so when you do put all that on the table, it's a phenomenal sell for us. And we do have a very good team and kids do want to come here. Let's go back to the uh, let's go back to the Frozen Four. Obviously the Merrimack game, the Ohio State game um, are in the books and now it's 8 days to prepare for Michigan, which last year was not the outcome uh, that you were looking for from from the, when you played Michigan that year. Talk to me about the role of an assistant coach from winning the Ohio State game for preparation for the Michigan game with a possibility and you don't know if it's BU or you don't know it's Minnesota looming what's what what does what's your role what what's the what's the temperature of of what's going on yeah so for me specifically I'm in charge of all the pre-scouts um so it's my responsibility to make sure that a the team is prepared for everything say Michigan's going to do but also make sure that on a broader scope, Rand and the whole staff know way more than the team. Because at the end of the day, we're not showing the team everything, right? So Rand does a, and, and Mike do a ton of work as well in the pre-scouts, but it's really my job to show, to go back to every game Michigan's played and look at power play, penalty kill, tendencies, all of that, and make sure I present that all to Rand and say, hey, here's here's what Michigan's doing. And he's going to be like, hey, I saw this too, Joe. Like you missed that. Or, okay, I didn't see this. We have to show that. And then we got to decipher what we're going to show to the team. And is that all in and, video format? Or is that all just kind of like, here's what they did against, you know? No, it's, it's mostly on video okay. format. So mm -hmm. we'll sit down as a staff. And I'll pull up video and we'll just go right through. Here's their penalty kill. Here's their power play. Here's, you know, some ozone stuff, some transition stuff. And we'll just kind of show, I'll put it all, you know, on video for Rand to see. And then we'll just talk about what we need to practice for the week. And again, this is a unique situation. Like you said, we had eight days. So you have longer to prepare, which is good. Uh, but you can't show the kids everything. So then you got to start deciphering what you're going to show, what you're not going to show. And I think the big thing we did leading up to Michigan was we just played him last year. We had a game um, against Michigan. 
and we had a lot of scoring chances again against Michigan that last year. We just didn't score, and obviously we we didn't come out to a great start as far as defensively. So our big prep against Michigan was showing them how vulnerable they can be defensively and how good we actually played last year offensively. We just didn't score, but this year we're going to score. So it was all positive. It's like, hey, we have a good team. We we got a lot of scoring chances last year. We just didn't score. This year we are going to score on those chances. We do have to clean up some things defensively. So I think the prep is is just getting your team in that mindset of here's what we need to do. Here's how we have to beat them. And that's kind of what we did for Michigan. And then, you know, for Minnesota and BU, that's kind of again my job to do the same thing we did for Michigan and have two pre-scouts ready, which, you know, it is a challenge to... Oh, sure. Because you can't just after the game, oh, we won and Minnesota won, and now I'm going to start that pre-scout. Sure, it's not like ECAC where you know you're playing Dartmouth one and then you're playing Yale next or whatever the case may be and you're ready to go. So you have to have both of those done Mm -hmm. in advance. Um, So, yeah, those pre-scouts were done. We talk a little bit as a staff... Obviously, you know, you expect to beat Michigan. You have to as a coach and as a player. You can't go in, oh, we might lose this game. No, like, hey, we got to expect to win. And then as a staff, we talk a little bit about BU and Minnesota. But it's not a lot. And then right after, obviously, the game, you have that extra day. and then Right, but you were the late game, too. You were the late game on Thursday. Yeah. So you're, you've got, again, in the grand scheme of things, it's not that much. But it does have an impact because... Well, Minnesota's home having dinner and so forth and so on, probably watching your game. You guys are playing, and that's two and a half, three, four, five hours of time that they get to kind of their coaches get to be prepared for you for for either Quinnipiac or uh, or Michigan. Yeah, absolutely. And and that game, did, you're right, it did finish late. Uh, but then again, you got to go back after that game, and right away we're trying to break down the Michigan game and have clips to show our guys to improve from that game. But you're also going over Minnesota and, okay, what do we need to do at practice? What do we need to show at video in the morning? What um, were you most impressed about the Michigan game from from your player's standpoint? I just think the – when I thought we played excellent that game, but we did – you know, we went up one nothing, then it's 1-1. We go up 2-1, to then it's 2-2. So we stayed with it. Like there, we were a very resilient team. We were getting a lot of chances. And, again, we weren't scoring. Like – you know, as much as we scored a few goals from behind the net and people say, you know, Portillo struggled that game. When you look at it, he actually stopped a bunch of breakaways. He stopped a 2 on 0 He made some big saves. And so we felt like we had a lot of grade-A scoring chances that we didn't score on. Um, and our guys stuck with it. I think that whole time we felt confident we were going to win the game. Uh, but just the resilience of our team to, okay, Fantilli scores, who's the best player in college hockey. He's going to be the number two overall pick tonight, actually. Um, From Luke Hughes, who went right to the NHL, who's going to be a superstar. You know, and the place was loud, and Michigan had a lot of momentum, and boom, we came right back, and we go up 3-2. to So just the resiliency of our team. Yeah. So uh, this seems like an odd question, but how do you teach resiliency? Because Rand talks a lot about culture, yep, right, and competitiveness and hunting the puck and all that great stuff. But to be resilient, to to which as an athlete you almost, it's kind of 
instilled in you at some point, I think. But like, how do you teach it to not let them get down? Because and we can, and we'll get to Minnesota when you were down to nothing because you were down to nothing. You do need some resiliency there. But like, how do you instill that in a kid? That's a great question. I think part of the culture that you have to create is that competitive um, work ethic every day. So it starts in the weight room. Like, are you competing every day in the weight room? Are you competing every day in practice, every game? Are you, every single thing you do, even in the classroom, are you competing and pushing yourself and pushing others? And that's what we try to do. So if you're doing that every single day, you're going to be put in tough situations. Um, and we feel that translate in, that translates into games. And then I'll be honest, like going through it, um, you need to be put in those situations during the year. You need to be down during the year. As much as you want to be up every game, as much as you want every game to be a nice three, four, nothing, you know, you didn't give up a lot. You want to be put in situations when you're down, when you're, you know, you have to come back from two nothing games where you're in overtime in pressure situations. When you go to Belfast and you play in front of 10,000 people or 8,000, whatever that was, and you are in a shootout. North Dakota game. When North I think it was 5-5 tie the first game and you came back and won 6-2 after being down. Yeah, right? North Dakota, which was you know 14,000 fans there. And then even the Connecticut Ice is a big event for us. Um, so you have to be put in all these situations so you're ready for the big stage. And that's what the whole year is. That's what lifting, practice, all these games are. And we try to prep our guys like we're building for the end of the season where you do get on the big stage and you're ready for that moment. Let's go to Minnesota. Um, down to nothing. Minnesota has got seven draft choices I think off the top of my head I'd have to go back and look but they've got a lot of draft choice left a lot of draft picks on their program you've got two right yep. one of which doesn't didn't is the goalie uh, backup goalie and doesn't play correct and it's 12:30 at night on Thursday night and you've got to now prep for Minnesota what are you doing yeah so with Minnesota watching them they were probably the most complete team we saw on tape. They had the offense, they had the firepower, they had the big names, Logan Cooley, mm -hmm. you know, Snuggerud, Matt Nyes, who, who again, Matt Nyes left that Minnesota game and played right in the Stanley Cup playoffs. Yep. Toronto, right? You went to With Toronto, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, like, they were phenomenal offensively. But what they had that most teams don't have that are that good offensively is they were phenomenal defensively. Their decor, they were seven deep on the back end. Um, they had a great goalie. They played really good team defense. When when you have a team who has a lot of draft picks and a lot of skill, typically they're not a good defensive team. You know, they're a little lazy defensively. They're not as structured. This Minnesota team was as good as we've seen defensively. So it was like, wow, they have the offense. They have the high-end firepower. And they defend really hard, so we knew this. It was going to be it was going to be a battle of two very good defensive teams. Is that the best team you've ever played? Ah, uh, you know that the Michigan team last year was the most talented team I've ever seen in college hockey. I believe they had seven first round picks. 
Um, I could be off on that, but when you, uh, yeah, I think they had seven first round picks. So that's probably the most talented team I've ever seen. Um, this Minnesota team might have been the most complete team I've seen when you add in how hard they played defensively. And so going into it, it was like, okay, this is going to be a two to one, three to two type hockey game, or maybe even one nothing because both teams are so good defensively. And, and that's kind of what you saw. It wasn't, there was not a lot of offense in that game. There was, I don't know if there was too many breakaways. There was very few two on ones where the Michigan game was breakaway, two on one, breakaway, two on one. There was a lot of offense. It was a lot of transition. Mm -hmm. In the Minnesota game, there wasn't. It was just two very good hockey teams that were structured defensively. So take us inside the locker room for our listeners. Inside the locker room, it's 2 1 mm -hmm. in the, it's the beginning of the third period. What's the conversation in the locker room at that point? You know, everybody was really confident. I think at that time, going into the third period, we played a really good second period. Um, we started to control the play. We started to control the tempo. Our guys felt that Minnesota, you know, they were wearing down and they were backing off on the forecheck. I don't know if that was a, hey, they're actually wearing down, they're tired, or they were doing that on purpose. Uh, but our guys were talking about that. They're like, hey, this, they're wearing down. They can't establish a forecheck. And we're starting to establish a lot of zone time, get pucks deep. So it was just a very confident group after that second period going into the third period. Um, I think everybody in the locker room felt we, we were going to tie it up. Um, you know, I think we thought we were going to tie it up a little sooner. <laughs> then uh, three minutes and 36 yeah, seconds or whatever but it was left. Yeah, yeah so yeah. it was a confident – and there's not much to be said. I think, you know, after the first period, Rand had one adjustment on our forecheck, uh, maybe a couple small tweaks here or there. And then after the second period, it wasn't much said. Um, everybody knew what we had to do, and it was just more about going out and executing it. Talk to me about the timeout. So it's six on four. Yeah. With about uh, off the top of my head, three, three, four minutes left to go in the game, and Rand calls the timeout. What's that conversation like? Yes, because we, he had. Because when you look at the video, he had command of the room. Oh. There is no doubt. I'll look up my adjective. There was no doubt he had command of the of the players at that moment in time. Yeah, and that's probably one of his biggest strengths. Is he is a CEO. He knows how to run a team, how to run an organization, how to run everything. And he's very good under pressure. Um, and you saw that right there. You know, we're down two to one. You go back to last year, you know, it was a very similar situation in Michigan. And he was confident. He, you know, we felt like we did the right thing. We had, this is last year against Michigan. We, you know, we pulled the goalie. We had Skylar Brendamore taking the faceoff. We knew we were going to win the faceoff. Everything was aligned and it didn't work out. So now going into this year, some people would say, okay, you know, don't pull the goalie. And there was no second guessing. Like, Rand knew what he wanted to do, and he was confident. So he calls the timeout, and I knew right away he was pulling the goalie. So he just kind of went over all six guys' responsibility on that faceoff. Um, and actually, Peretz, who's pretty – he doesn't really pay attention. Um, he's more – he, he does meditation at the timeouts and the media timeouts. Hmm. 
Um, so he had no idea we were pulling the goalie. Well, because he was skating back and forth. So, in so, the, in, yeah, in if the you crease. look at it, yeah, yeah. We, we sent our six guys out, and all six knew exactly what they were doing. They knew their responsibilities, and we practiced six on five every single week. So it's not like he had to go over a ton of things on the board. They knew what to do. Um, it was just remi- reminders. And so I look down, and I see Peretz is still in net, and I look at Rand, and I was like, you might need to tell him to get out of the net. He yelled at Yanni, and Yanni comes off the ice. Um, but yeah, everybody was confident. There was no, um, you know, there was no second guessing. You know, in the back of my mind, you know, because I'm sitting there watching. I'm like, oh my gosh, like, I, I hope we score. We, we can't Here give we up go. another. We can't give up another empty netter. So. Uh, but yeah, Rand was confident. He had full command, and our guys were confident too. They knew they knew they were going to score. They really did. They believed in it. They believed it was their time to to win this game. And Colin Graff from the corner. Yep. He probably has scored from that corner. I don't know how many times. When you watch, you know, when you watch your games, and you guys obviously uh, coach him. But I mean, <laughs> that slap shot from that corner on a power play. Which essentially, I mean, I know it wasn't a power play because uh, what's his name made time it, expired. Yeah, yeah, time expired on the penalty and came back, but it essentially was a power play. It, it, it's unbelievable that he can get that shot off that quickly in the spot that he has to get it. I mean, it's practice, obviously. You guys yeah. coach it, but uh, talk about a little bit about Colin in that in that particular location that he is on the ice. Yeah, you know what? He's a special player, um, special kid. He works so hard. He's a great student. Just an, You can't say enough about Colin Graff. So when he gets the puck there, if you if you watch this a lot this year, you're going to notice, yeah, he scores a lot from there. But the other thing he does a lot is he passes to our high tip option, which in that scenario was Skylar Brendamore. So we've scored a lot of goals when he passes to Skyler, who tips it, might go in, or it might create a rebound where we get the rebound. And then you also have Sam Lipkin. On the back end. Because we have the extra skater. So now that puts our extra skater on the back post. So the goalie feels Skyler at the top of the crease. He feels Sam Lipkin on the back post. And he knows their team is very well coached. They've seen clips on us on the power play. Colin Graff shooting or shooting off of the post for a tip. And so the goalie is actually kind of reading Colin might pass back post. So he's kind of caught in between of sliding to for the pass, but also trying to get the shot. And, and Colin shoots it, and he catches the goalie in between, and obviously the rest is history. But, um, you know, I, th- I think it's one of those things where you can't be predictable and Colin can't shoot every time. He can't pass every time. You have to have a little bit of both. And I think in that scenario, uh, Minnesota, you know, the, especially the goalie, wasn't really sure exactly what Colin Graff was going to do. And, and I think it was Rand in the press conference who really gave credit to Sam, who was yep. on the backside, who provided – there were two or three options there, right? There was the shot. There was the tip. There was the backside. And all of that, as you just mentioned, is in the goalie's head – and trying to figure out what that is with the defensive players on what they're trying to do because they have to stop trying to stop something as well. But they're short. At that point, it's it's still a six on. It's, it's technically a six on five, but it's really a six on it's four. It's a six on four. Yeah, and absolutely. Them trying to figure out exactly where they're supposed to be under that high. I don't call it high stress, but it's a it's a it's a power play essentially, and it's an extra skater as well. Um, 
And so, yeah, he, he, he did give Sam a little bit of credit for being there. And that's all coached, right? I mean, that's the stuff that you guys all work on. Yeah, so, I mean, the setup, and this is, they know this anyway, but in that timeout, Sam knows he has to be on the back post. You know, that's what Rand said. You always have to be back post option every single time. And, um, you know, it happened to work out. And then even going back, like, the puck goes from Metza to Graf. So now the goalie's coming from one side to the other side, and he's got a lot of stuff going through his mind. He's coming across, and he knows, because he was just there, he's, he knows Lipkin's right next to him. He knows Brendan Moore's on top. And then he comes over, and you just feel so much pressure from all those guys around you because there are six guys on the ice, and it's tough as a goaltender to just play shot and, and to play Colin Graf, and he kind of was caught in the middle. So now we go to overtime. <laughs> Again, it sounds like there's not much said at the overtime in between periods. Is that true? Yeah, there was, if I'm correct, uh, Rand comes in, he looks around, and he kind of smiles and laughs. And then all the guys kind of are smiling too and, and laugh. And he's like, let's go win this thing. And they're like, let's go win it. And that was it. It was that simple. There wasn't much to go over at that point there was no adjustments we needed to make it was be confident I, he might have said something about hey be confident and go win this thing um, but the, he smiled and laughed and the team smiled and laughed and it just everybody breathed you know there was no tension there was no nervousness from anybody which you would expect going into overtime national championship game 20,000 people there Guys would be nervous or the coach would be nervous and, and neither side was nervous. It was everybody was really confident. Now, I don't think anybody thought we were gonna win it that quick. Um, but wow, it was it just incredible finish. So let's talk about that. Yeah. The jet. Yeah. Talk so the jet, for those listeners who don't know, is the play that essentially won the national championship, right? Designed by you. I guess, yeah. Right? Well, that's what yeah. that's what the coach yeah. says on national TV, yeah. so we can only go with that. So talk a little bit about that play and talk about design and talk a little bit about how and why did you choose that play. And So we have face-off plays for all the dots, as Rand mentioned on um, TV, I believe. Um, the center ice face-off, we, we only have a few. Um, we have some simple ones, and that's probably – the jet is probably the most intricate where there's, you know, a little bit more, like we're trying to actually get a scoring chance where the other ones were more just trying to get possession and get the puck in the zone. Um, so the jet we designed, this is going back to, I remember running it against Minnesota Duluth. So Chase Prisky's senior year. Um, that was the first year it came about. Um, Wyatt Bongiovanni actually is the guy who named it. Rand has a name for everything, right? As we should. Yeah, you know, yeah, you yeah. guys need to know what plays are called. I'm terrible at naming things. Like, I can design a play, but I'm terrible at naming it. So I think I asked Wyatt or the captains that year, hey, what should we call this? And I have no idea. Like, I, we should ask Wyatt. But he, he said the Jet. So it was named the Jet. And if you go back to that Minnesota Duluth game, you know, we're down by a goal. We win the faceoff. We execute the Jet perfectly. We get a two on one and we just, we don't finish it off, right? Um, so th going into this year, we ran the Jet, I estimate, 150 times. 
That's probably how many times we ran it. Typically, we run it with Quillen's line and Brenda Moore's line. And usually we start Zach Metza because it all starts with our right defenseman. He has to be able to make that pass to our left wing. Um, so we run it 150 times this year. I can vividly remember us getting multiple two-on-ones. Like If you watch the Sacred Heart game, the opening face-off the second period, we get a clean two-on-one. We don't score. So we 150 times we run it, we don't score once. We got some good chances we don't score once. So now against Minnesota, national championship game, and, and the players really call it. Like it's, it's basically our only play that we're trying to score. So they call the Jet. So they call it on the ice. On the ice as yeah. they line up. Usually, so I'll, this is not discussed in the locker room ahead of time. Sometimes going out on the ice, I'll be like, hey, run this play off the opening faceoff. But that scenario, it was they called it on the ice. Usually on the when we get on the bench, I'll just look at the center or I'll look at Metza, who's always starting. I'll be like, hey, run the jet or run this or run that. Um, so they call it on the ice. That line does. And the, the faceoff actually goes into the bench. So this is a whole other story I can get back to after. So the faceoff goes into the bench. Rand picks up the puck. You notice I want. I can't wait to talk to him about that, Joe. I yeah. don't know if we'll, we'll we'll use this in the, in the yeah. podcast. Sarah Sarah Frazier and I are sitting in the stands, and we're looking at each other like, "Did you see what Rand's doing? He is taking the puck and looking for a fan to give it to." Yeah, and I'm like, "What the heck is happening?" So, I, I'll, so I'll I'll get into that go story ahead, now. Go ahead, go go. So the puck comes to the bench between Rand and I. He picks it up, and you know he's got four kids. He's always thinking of kids and fans and all that. So he turns around and he's and I'm watching him and he's looking for a kid to give the puck to. And I kind of see a little bit behind us. It's all adults. Like we I couldn't see a kid in sight, which was surprising. And it seemed like it was 20 seconds. It might have only been 5, but it seemed like it was 20 seconds that he's looking and he finally finds a kid who happens to be a redhead. <laughs> <laughs> and he, you know, that, that was yeah, his yeah, thing. He's yeah, like, yeah, I, I, yeah, found yeah. A, I found a, a redhead. And so he throws the puck to the kid. And in the meantime, he doesn't see the goal. He's, so in the meantime, we win the faceoff. And it's bang, bang, bang in the back of the net. And I turn to him. And he says I tackled him, which I don't remember. I don't recall. I'm sure I did. <laughs> and I said to him, we just won that national championship on the effing jet and he's just kind of looking at me and and he doesn't even know what to do or what to say he's starting to cry but i don't think he saw that the goal because he was given the puck to a fan um joe i've watched that video okay probably 20 times yep that exact segment right because everyone thinks we won the face the, the university won the face off bobcats won the face off and down they scored no there were two face offs correct the first one took two seconds and I have showed Justin. Who were we with? I showed somebody. I think I showed Bobby Lucarelli, mm -hmm. who played on the team back yep. in the '90s. Um, and I showed him, and he did. He'd never seen it before. And he's like, "What was that?" I go, "Yeah." I go, "He took the puck. He threw it over over the glass." I said, "He did turn around, and he did turn around enough time to see the." The faceoff was then when Colin comes in, passes it back to Zach, and then back to uh, to Sam and across to Jacob. Uh, he was at least turned around. Whether he saw it or not, I don't know. But he was turned around. Yeah. And I'm like, 
again, I don't go to every men's hockey game, um, but that said, I don't think I've ever seen Rand grab a puck and throw it up in the up in the stands. I'm sure he has done it. I've just never seen it. And this is the national championship, and he's throwing pucks like it's like it's candy on a parade. There, there was a great article that came out in the Minnesota paper. It was a you know some some blogger. He writes an article, and it's a really well. It's actually funny. He says. Coming into the game, when he saw the red carpet, right, he said, you know, Minnesota comes out of the bus and they have their suits on and they look, they're dressed to the nines. They go by and then Quinnipiac rolls up. And he said they looked like a high school (laughs) hockey team coming off the bus because they had... You know, he called it khaki pants and a golf shirt. And he said they looked like a high school team. He's like, Minnesota's going to win this game. So he talks about that. He talks about a million other things. And then he talks about the play in overtime. And he goes, I'm watching uh, Rand, Quinnipiac's head coach. And we're in overtime of a national championship game. And he picks the puck up. And he's looking for a fan. And he's just, he's finding a fan. And he's smiling and waving and tossing the puck. And he goes, Right there I go, we're going to lose this hockey game. <laughs> he goes, this coach has no care. He's just you know out for another game and it's no big deal. And it was a really interesting article how we walk in, we're going to lose, and then I see the head coach just tossing pucks to kids in overtime like it's no big deal. Okay, now, now Quinnipiac's going to win the game. So just, we'll go through that play, and uh, I appreciate the time that you've spent here today. Let's go through the play from... So, so, the Bobcats win the faceoff, but Collins got to get it back to Zach, right? Because it's kind of behind the center section there. And so, is the play to win the faceoff? Like when you design the play, mm-hmm. it's to win the faceoff to get it to the defenseman. So, it's to get it to Zach, the right D. So whether the wings have to come in and chip it back to the D, even if if uh, Quillen wins it back to the lefty, which is Jake Johnson, mm-hmm. Jake is going passing immediately to Zach. So however we get the puck to Zach, it's got to get to Zach. Gotcha. And so you know, Colin, his and, and everything has to go perfect, which is crazy that it did in that moment. So Colin has to win that puck to Zach, but then he has to sprint to the red line on the wall because what he's doing is he's bringing their left D to him, which is opening up a scene behind him. So now Collins got to win it. Then he's got to sprint. Zach's got to get it and carry the puck back to suck the forward in with him, which he does. Sam Lipkin has to go in and make sure he wins the puck if there is a puck there. And then he has to find a scene behind their center and their left D. So then Zach has to make the perfect tape-to-tape pass, which he did. Sam's got to get the puck. Then Jacob Quillen has to win the faceoff. Then he has to beat his center to the back post. And most guys, and we never talk about this, is Lipkin knows he can throw it to the back post for Quillen or for the center. And typically, most kids are just going to shoot that puck, right? And Jacob had... The skill, the talent, the poise to catch it and to pull it to his back end and tap it in the empty net. So everything had to go perfect. Everything did, and it's it's a storybook ending. It really is. Talk about the impact 
that it had on your community, right? Like your family, your friends of yours, because I think those are some great stories. They, they sent you some videos in terms of what it all meant to them. So for me, graduating in 06, there, I have a special group of friends like that we played hockey here. Everybody that I played with has such a passion for Quinnipiac. It's actually incredible how much of a passion they have. So all of the guys I played with, we still, there's 18 of us that still go golfing every year in Traverse City. We did it three weeks ago. So all those guys are come, are buying $2,000 plane tickets from Manitoba, from Vancouver, from Minnesota, from New York, from all over to come in. So now I'm at the game. We win a national championship. And my best friends that I played with who probably have more passion for the school than I do. It was in, it was incredible to see them crying in the stands, to see their emotion after the game, to see my family crying and their emotion. Like that was incredible. And just to see people that have been here, obviously like you've been here for a while too, you know, the Billy Meccas of the world, 30 years to see how happy and proud they were. It's an unbelievable feeling. It really is. And these these players who won the national championship, they still don't realize the impact they had on all of our former alums and people who have worked here and all that stuff. It's just a, it's it's so special. And in the hockey community here that we have, it's it's a small group, and they ha- they they care so much about this school and this hockey program. And that was just something I've never seen before. Um, at Union, I wasn't an alum, so I didn't. Re- I wasn't really a part of that celebration. Right. And just to see that here was was probably the best part of the whole thing is to see how happy everybody else was. Yeah, no, it's a it's a small school, right? I mean, you know, from 1975 when the school started, there was 350 kids that graduated, and you know, it's hockey was just starting then, and hockey's big in Hamden and the surrounding communities, East Haven and West yep. Haven, you know, Fairfield Prep and et cetera, et cetera. And there's this, um, there's kind of this underlying feeling of, um, of you want your, either your workplace or your alumni to experience some real positiveness in athletics. And, and this is the, like, you couldn't have envisioned that back in 75. You couldn't have envisioned that in 80. You couldn't envision that in the 90s. Mm-hmm. And so that whole journey that everybody's been on and supporting the university in one way, shape, or form, whether it was the women's basketball team that went to the Sweet 16, whether it's, um, you know, Cassie's program which on the women's side, which has made it to the frozen, uh, I guess the eight, elite eight, whatever, for the last couple of years. Yeah. Um, there's that passion and desire to celebrate and support and it all of it just came rushing out with 1950 on the clock. It really did, and I think too. You know, we went from nothing, right? Like you talked about, to all of a sudden we're something. We're in the Frozen Four and 13 and 16, and then it's like we're really good, but are we ever going to win it? You know that that's kind of what everybody's saying is Quinnipiac is so good, but are they ever going to win that big one? Yeah, and. To finally do it is just, I mean, it, it was, it's worth the wait. Like, it, it really is. And um, what, what an experience for, for everybody to be a part of. Joe, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. No problem. Thanks, guys. Thanks for joining us on the 10th Second Podcast. And as you heard today, the beginnings were, well, rough. 
In the years from 1998 to 2016, Quinnipiac gets into Division One, moves from Atlantic Hockey to the ECAC, and builds a $60 million facility. We couldn't see your family. We were too busy playing ping pong. Oh, ping pong. Oh, my God. We, we had a ping so pong table. Ping-pong. Oh, yeah? So much Me, pong. Philly, Coach Dume, probably... Uh, Coach Dume chopped his finger a little bit on the he side of the table. He was sweating so much. He, I've never seen somebody <laughs> want to win so bad ever in my life. He was losing his mind. It was unreal. Yeah. C- Coach Dume is a big uh, ping pong player? Oh, yeah. yeah. Anything, anything yeah, where you can get competitive. Anything you can get competitive, he's in there. Yeah. NCAA appearances are coming. The challenges and the grind and the success, it's all part of it. And that's what Rand talks about on the next podcast. Our production crew is Justin Morosky, who is our producer and audio engineer. Jillian Catalano is our social media coordinator. David DeRoche handled the audio mastering. I'm Keith Woodward, and I'm your host. Please follow us on Twitter and Instagram at the 10th second. And also follow the podcast account at QU Podcasts. And thanks again for joining us on this episode.